This is the Child Welfare Information Gateway Podcast, a place for those who care about strengthening families and protecting children. You'll hear about the innovations, emerging trends, and success stories across child welfare, direct from those striving to make a difference. This is your place for new ideas and information to support your work to improve the lives of children, youth, and families. Today, we wrap up our two-part series on protective factors in child welfare by taking a look at how local agencies are implementing protective factors holistically within their agencies, from the practices and services they provide to working internally between peers and supervisors. Hello all, Tom Oates from Information Gateway here. In part one, we pulled apart deep definitions of protective factors and heard about ways individual professionals can identify and use protective factors in working with children and families. We also discussed ideas and methods for how entire communities and community-based groups can be involved and use similar techniques in a common language to help bridge some of the gaps between service providers. This episode continues a conversation we had with Kaylin O'Connor, a senior policy analyst for the Center for the Study of Social Policy. Kaylin is integral into CSSP's Strengthening Families Approach and Protective Factors Framework. And Tabitha Kelly, Division Chief with Arlington County, Virginia's Children and Family Services, where they have incorporated protective factors across their agency. We discussed some tangible ways professionals can help parents build the skills that improve protective factors, along with how agencies can train various levels of staff. So take a listen to what Tabitha's been able to accomplish in Arlington County, which is a diverse, densely populated location directly bordering Washington, D.C., and how Arlington County and CSSP work directly together to build a sustainable framework across the agency. There are some really good takeaways here that that can help you and your agency if you're interested in applying protective factors in your work with parents and families. So let's get to it. This is part two of our conversation on protective factors with Kaylin O'Connor and Tabitha Kelly. So when we talked in part one, we really addressed a lot of the, the needs at the professional level in engaging the parents and working with the families. And we also touched base on how other community groups that child welfare agencies may interact with can recognize and implement and kind of use protective factors and how they're helping children and families. But so, Kaylin, let's get back to kind of that agency level here. And we know when it comes to agencies, there are multiple levels. But let's start a little bit at the the frontline worker, the professionals. And what are you seeing with CSSP and how professionals help parents build the skills or build the awareness even that can lead to those really positive differences, those improvements in strengthening their protective factors? One of the things I think is really powerful with strengthening families is that these protective factors are universal. So we're not sitting a family down and saying, here are all the ways that you're not measuring up. (laughs) We're instead saying, we know that families need these characteristics to do well and to thrive and to give their children the childhood they want to give them. So let's look at where you are on each of these and where you might need some support. And so it really approaches it from a universal standpoint, and it doesn't, it doesn't put families in a defensive position, uh, but it rather says, we know that you have strengths that have allowed you to get to this point in your life, and we know that you need some support right now. Let's figure out what it is. 
So that's one thing. I also think that um, we need caseworkers to feel the same approach from their supervisor and from their agency that we want them to take with families. Just like we want parents to take that approach with their children, and we can't expect parents to be positive and strength-based with their children if we're not being positive and strength-based with them. We need the caseworker to feel that from their supervisors as well. And so it really is a parallel process that goes all through the agency and through the system. And I think when caseworkers are experiencing that treatment from their supervisor, they can then turn around and take that approach, a more generous, uh, giving people the benefit of the doubt, working with them on what they need kind of approach. Right. And so in Arlington, where Tabitha, you've been able to, to implement this, First off, let me pull back. Why? Why did why uh, did uh, did you decide that you know really infusing ho protective factors holistically across the agency? You know why did that decision you know come into play? And and then what does that really kind of mean? Yeah, about three years ago, if memory serves correctly, we just started taking a look around the agency. We're really busy. There are lots of different initiatives and lots of things going on. And there we have a variety of staff who are performing different roles. And what we found is that we were we did not have a shared language. We were busy. We often talked or worked in cross purposes, if you will. Um, everyone had the best intentions and we were doing good work. Don't get me wrong. But we needed a unifying approach to the way in which we did our work and in children and families, we're like, okay, let's sit down. And the protective factors framework, it suited our needs in terms of unifying the approach. It was a universal approach that, that was easy for staff to understand and it complemented the work that was already being done. It was, it's a research informed approach already. So that was very, very attractive to us. And it worked for both emphasizing parent and child well-being. So the two-generation approach worked for our staff here in children and family services. So I thought it was broad enough and unifying enough to bring 100 people together within the division. And it was really, it was a great move when we discovered the framework and started to engage CSSP as our partner. And then, of course, you had to actually do it. So then you've got, like you mentioned, you know, you're talking 100 staff. So training staff doesn't just mean the frontline workers. It's also the supervisors and, and the, multi, the multiple levels of an agency. So how are you training all of these different staffs, knowing it's kind of like this puzzle with a lot of different pieces to it, and each piece fits a different part along the way? How are you able to implement concurrent training, you know, knowing that you've got a huge turnover issue to deal with as well? Yes, that is always a challenge. And, you know, when we began this protective factors journey, we sat with managers from a variety of different disciplines. I'll say that first and foremost. We had child welfare in the room. We had behavioral and mental health staff in the room, child care services staff. We had eligibility uh, workers in the room and our parent infant education staff because we really did want to unify the different um, parties in which we work, first and foremost ourselves, but we, we wanted to make sure that everyone could see the importance 
and to see themselves in this work. And that helped with buy-in. So that was really, really important right from the start. And then starting with managers, I believe the key to success at an agency is your middle, middle line management staff, because they're going to be held accountable for implementing any new change or any new initiative. So we started holding a series of sessions with middle managers to educate them on what are the protective factors? How does this work with what all is already in existence here? And no, this does not double your workload. It will actually create some efficiencies for you in the long run. And so when they began to see themselves in the work, they became invested. They began talking to their frontline staff in individual sessions and in team meetings. And so the vision was just not mine as the, as the director. It became a shared vision, and thus we, we moved faster together. And so the training started with managers, and then they took it to individual team meetings. We sent out lots of email blasts, you know, like, did you know this? Or let's talk about social connections today. Let's applaud this worker for finding a family who were, who's overseas or Facebook, and now they're flying to this country to visit with the child that's in care. I mean, that's a real story, right? And so you're celebrating successes, getting people excited, and it just takes off. And from there, we brought CSSP in. Um, Kaylin came in herself to do a one-day training with 100 of my staff. And then the managers had to then take more of that, like in subsequent meetings. And we launched a supervisory toolkit. We're really, really proud of that. We launched a supervisory toolkit in July of 2016 that the supervisors can use in individual consultation sessions with the workers. They have action tip sheets that can help coach the workers to support families differently. So there's a lot of different strategies and layers to this and you have to be energetic and persistent you 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 sound like right now a sales coach because it sounds that at, at many points this was and is a, you know a sales job to get kind of for some folks to make that kind of approach that kind of shift well it sounds like you were successful in that so um so talk to me you mentioned about the 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 supervisory toolkit and getting their staff to implement, to work at it. Talk to me as if you were talking to another agency somewhere across the country when they look at you and go, okay, so what does this look like on the grassroots level? What does this look like when that first family engagement happens? Okay, well, I mean, right from the first interaction, you're not planning for them. You're planning with the family. And you may that may mean that you go at a slower pace or that you break down goals in a way that um, the family obviously can absorb, not just to please your court documentation. And so it is a process. And sometimes uh, workers can get a little frustrated because we have federal timelines, right? In which we have to abide by. And so you have to gently nudge families and educate them on the timeline, but you're, like a marketing tool, you're getting their buy-in to move forward as well, right? Because ultimately, what they want is their child to be safe. And they want us out of their lives, 
right? And so if we can join together for the health and safety of their child in an expeditious manner, then that's what we will try our hardest to do. And, you know, a supervisor can very well take out some of these tip sheets and say, all right, well, let's let's work on this. Or if, if this mother or father or grandmother or caregiver has identified social connections as a need, because in Arlington, we have a lot of, it's a transient community. So there's a lot of social isolation here. There's a large immigrant population. And so we often find that although we're densely populated, people are lonely and they don't know where to go for support in their communities. So you may just have to brainstorm where to go with this family, put them in the car and go there together and see if that takes hold. And then you continue to chip away. You know, again, it's very concrete and it, and you have to be focused and you have to be persistent. Yeah. There's, I mean, how do you train for that diligence along the way? And, and as long as somebody can understand that this is, you know, there's not the magic pill, this is going to be a slow process. And as long as there is those incremental steps along the way, that's success, especially when you're a skill building, it's, you know, literally building strength doesn't happen over overnight. And absolutely working with their core partners to help them understand that as well. Mm. So, so Tabitha mentioned you, Kaylin, that literally you came down and it sounds like you, you, you came in and for the one day and that's all you needed to do. Just swooped in, you know, uh, the magic pixie dust just sprinkled over everybody and then they were all good. Give me a little better, better sense of how CSSP and Arlington County kind of partnered together. Yeah, it was a little more complicated than that. Um, <laughs> Um, actually, one of my former colleagues, Neela Farasan, and a consultant who works with us, with us, Juanita Blount-Clark, had been working with Arlington before I stepped in um, and had really been developing some of these tools that they were going to use, um, which other jurisdictions can also use, which has been fabulous, that we've worked with uh, Arlington to, to develop certain tools. We've worked with North Carolina and with Connecticut and with Utah to develop other tools. And then as those tools are developed for a specific jurisdiction, we then make a, a more national version of it that anyone could use or modify. So that's been a really helpful process. And Arlington has both been part of contributing to those materials getting developed and then has also benefited from the work done in other jurisdictions. So that's been going on for a few years now. And uh, some training was done of the management level prior to my getting involved. And then in 2016, as we were developing the supervisor's tool uh, toolkit, we came in, Juanita and I came in and did a full day training with staff, all staff, as well as um, I think we did half a day or another day with the management and supervisors to really look through, so how is this gonna apply um, in, in each of your different staff groups and how are, for example, in the behavioral health side, we're less familiar with this and how were they going to implement it in their work and how would it be reflected in, in all of these different, you know, the documentation that you have to go through. So it's been quite a process with that. Um, we, from the national level, have a lot of materials and tools available that we can tweak for the specific jurisdiction. So we were able to do that. The training that we did um, in Arlington is a modification of a training that's available on our website that people can download the slides and use them. Uh, but when we come in, we can really modify it for the particular audience and, and get, uh, get the activities tweaked to, uh, to suit the, the crowd we're talking to. 
Sure. And well, I'll make sure that we actually put a link uh, to the, uh, the the strengthening families uh, approach and the protective factors framework uh, in the show notes on the webpage uh, for, for this podcast. So, Kalen, what are you, are you seeing common challenges across the board with uh, with agencies? Has there been one particular sticking point that you're finding the most challenge or is it or is it different for each agency? I could say a couple things. Um, one that has been challenging is uh, both theoretically and then with some really concrete practical things. Theoretically, there's sometimes a concern that when we focus on strengths, we lose our focus on safety. And we need to always help people, caseworkers in particular, understand how we can do both at the same time and how the focus on protective factors will get us to longer-term safety and thriving um, in addition to addressing the immediate safety threats. So we always have to be sure that we're not giving the impression that we're canceling out, like we don't worry about risk anymore. (laughs) We just make sure they've got a friend to call if they need help. That's not what we're talking about. Um, And then more concretely, A lot of jurisdictions around the country use um, the safety practice model that refers to protective capacities. And there's been some confusion in the field about protective factors and protective capacities. So we did develop some materials to help explain how those are related to each other. And in shorthand, I could say now, um, protective capacities are actions um, that parents will take to keep a child safe in the face of risk. So it's sort of, will you step in and protect the child in this dangerous situation? And those are often things that the families that come into the child welfare system have have protective capacities that are not fully developed. And they need to focus on those and build those up before we can consider their children safe. Protective factors are more universal. Um, They are more of aspirational. No one is ever completely... Uh, you know, filled up on social connections or, <laughs> you know, um, it's, it's not a, a milestone you reach and then have in place. Um, so they're more the aspirational, the uh, long-term thriving, where protective capacities are very immediate and very focused on um, how the parent will protect the child in specific risky situations. So when we talk about that with caseworkers, we often have to go into that of what are the protective capacities we had um, in Wisconsin, the department of children and families actually did a crosswalk, which protective capacities relate to which protective factors. Um, And then at the national level, we took that and some other materials and conversations to develop a set of slides that show sort of how we're our goal with building protective factors is that families will not encounter those risky situations as often and that they'll be better equipped to deal with them when they do but it doesn't change where the safety threshold is. We still need to focus on getting families to that safety threshold before we send them back out into the world on their own. But we can at the same time be building up these protective factors that uh, will make them more likely to thrive in the long run. Really, really points to that that middle manager level of constantly reinforcing these skills and and these these actions for those caseworkers because it you know there's so many little questions about how are you applying and what are we doing and, and trying to either either institute the behaviors for the professional level or maybe even change some habits uh, along the way. So so Tabitha, let me ask you. How have you seen? What's what's been? How's how's it going so far? Talk to me about what kind of changes you have seen uh, in Arlington. Well, we definitely are speaking the same language now, so that's really really important. So we've acquired a shared language, 
And we have, we have had the hurdle of, hey, if you're focusing so much on strengths, are you just bleeding hard social workers? Are you sugarcoating the facts for the court? And so we've had that struggle. And, but the protective factors has simultaneously helped us to acknowledge the risk and the strengths. And so we have educated some of our community partners so that they could help us in this. And we could, I've even gone to the judges and we've talked about protective factors. Um, I'm really happy to, to report that one of our judges has really taken hold to this and in her swearing in, ceremony, she mentioned protective factors being a critical piece of um, positive outcomes for families. So our agency, we were just like, we're so, so excited. So that has been amazing that we have received positive feedback from our court officials on the way in which we're documenting our efforts to support families that and, and buffer the risk. We have received positive feedback from parents in the way in which we are engaging them and particularly through our parenting education classes because they it's not a a, a class where it is a checkoff box and when you're sitting there and someone's talking at you for two hours really an interactive session where parents are sharing their experiences and hearing from each other and I will add one of the, the beauty, beautiful points of the parenting education class that we have is a home visiting component. And so the instructor is actually conducting a home visit to each family to give them uh, real time parenting support and to reinforce some of the principles that are being taught in the class if the parent is too um, embarrassed or shy to ask a question, they can do it there as well. So that's been really a, a big change. And we also, due to vacancies and turnover, we repurposed a couple of positions. So we now have created a little mini team that focuses on protective factors as like their, their cohort here. And so they are, in order to, um, make a referral to this team. The worker has to identify the specific protective factor in which the parent needs more support. And then a plan is created with the parent to bolster those skills. So those are some of the changes that we've seen here. Very exciting work. <laughs> Have you had to validate this? Have you had to turn around and, and once you guys made the decision, I'm sure there may have been somebody that said, all right, what does success look like? How are you, you've been given some qualitative results, but are there any quantitative results that you're able to find uh, to measure the impact? Sure. And it's, and it's difficult because they're intertwined, right? When families are engaged, for example, and they're, um, using their voice and choice in a family partnership meeting and really working on those action steps, you're more likely to be reunified faster. So we're seeing um, our permanency rates increase. Our foster care population over time has decreased. And so that's an interesting challenge for us now so that we're, the focus is becoming more on a preventative side versus a foster care focused side. 
we are tracking how many of our case plans actually embed protective factors in them. And that's a new thing. And so we, we're looking at qualitative data measurements so that we can tell us a different story later on with some real hard data. <laughs> but we can, I can tell you our recidivism rates for repeat child maltreatment are very low. It's less than 2%. Oh, that's great. That's, and I'm sure that these were the kind of numbers that you were, you know, hoping for or targeting, because there's got to be a point where you had to go and sell this not only across to the hundred folks, but you had to sell this to one or two people who maybe be a little higher up in the food chain. So when someone is thinking about, you know, this sounds great, I'd like to kind of go through this effort. How do I get senior management buy-in, especially when they turn to me and go, how much this going to cost? Where did that challenge come into play? And then how did you overcome it? That's a great question. And and funding and finances is always going to be a concern. So I will tell you, I did not ask for additional funding to support this. What we did, we repurposed and reallocated resources that already existed. So that was really helpful. For example, you know, becoming really, really clear and familiar with your funding streams so that you can know how to maximize them is going to be critically important. Because again, the protective factors framework overlays already existing programs and practices so that you can just change the way in which you're doing things, not necessarily have to be a, a, a large financial impact. Now we, we reallocated our federal funding uh, promoting Safe and Stable Families Act, and we geared some of that funding toward more concrete supports. If a one-month uh, rental assistance is needed for you to be reunified with your child, I'm going to use promoting Safe and Stable Families funding to support that effort. If a child needs a bed, to be able to visit you on a trial home visit, we're going to make sure that child has a bed and a place to sleep for the weekend when they're visiting mom and dad. So those are like really tangible on the ground things where my manager said, oh, no additional funding? Okay, go ahead, let's see how this works. <laughs> and so we were smart about the way in which we used our money and you really have to be intentional about it so when you see an opportunity, you know, even though that opportunity may be a vacancy, right? You may not want to fill that same vacancy with the same position. You might want to shift the focus. And that's where we built this little mini team that focuses on protective factors. Does that make sense? Yeah, it totally does. And I, I, I thank you for diving in deep here on this. And of course, Tabitha has been giving us a sense of what's happening in Arlington County, Virginia. And so you're able to see kind of the, the results from the families, from kind of those big data points on permanency and, and number of foster care or time in foster care. Uh, Kaylin, I want to pull back and kind of take this and look at it from a different potential benefit for an agency. As we're talking about how it can be implemented throughout a community, we're talking about how it can be uh, it'll be a success in terms of working with families. Are you seeing from the various states that once this kind of process, this mindset gets added, 
that not only, because it was mentioned at the very, very beginning when you talked about treating the families as partners and having that kind of respect, is that aura or that environment then actually trickling down toward the peer-to-peer relationship and the supervisor to the supervisee? What I'm getting at, are you seeing the benefits of treating families in a different manner, flipping to where cohorts and peers are treating each other within an agency together in a better manner. I see Tabitha nodding her head. I think she is saying they are seeing this there. I don't have concrete examples, but I do think um, that when you flip that switch about seeing the best in people, focusing on strengths, approaching parents as partners, assuming we all want the best for this child, that is a very big difference and you can't go back after that. And I think it permeates your, all of your relationships. It permeates how you do your work, but it also permeates how you interact with the families at your child's school, um, in your own personal life, or what you think about a family you see out in public with the child throwing a tantrum. You, you take a different approach once you've gotten this switch flipped (laughs) Um, and really think about parents from a strength-based perspective. So um, I do think it affects those peer-to-peer relationships and the supervisor relationships. Um, I don't have concrete examples of that. I do know we had some Wisconsin counties that were reporting less burnout, um, both on a sort of anecdotal level of just caseworkers saying they were less burnt out, uh, but also seeing less turnover. Um, as they implemented this approach and really made it so the caseworker isn't the bad guy. Nobody wants to go to work and be the bad guy every day. When you're in it to help kids, um, that gets really tiring. So I think um, it it has a lot of potential for changing how people see their work and how they feel about their work and how they relate to each other. And Tabitha, you are nodding your head. Sure. I um, really think that this idea of taking care of families and partnering and being respectful of them permeates the child welfare organizations, right? We believe in parallel process. So we celebrate successes of staff. Uh, We acknowledge when people have had a hard day. We have really become, I think, far more aware of the need for self-care amongst our busy staff um, here. And so we've taken the time, for example, to um, divide the workload sometimes when staff are overwhelmed. Uh, Staff go out together on home visits to support each other, particularly if they're concerned about a potential, you know, conflict interaction. We have also started debriefing um, critical incidents that have happened. Um, Unfortunately, we had a child suicide last year. And that really did take a toll on our staff. And although we are healers, we needed help. And so we believe, just as we tell families, everybody needs help sometimes. We elicited the help of our adult behavioral health staff to come in to support my team here in Child and Family Services so that they didn't have to do it all. Right. So we have a series of debriefing sessions around grief and loss and our own trauma response to hard things that are happening with families. And I think this is really the protective factors framework has helped us. um, And it dovetails nicely with the trauma informed care initiatives that we have here. Right. 
Um, the other thing is when you see someone, when you catch someone doing good, right? Just like in elementary school, we have a performance award program that anyone can acknowledge another staff member, peer-to-peer, supervisor to supervisor, on up and down the, the chain of command. And they get, you know, a little financial kickback for being acknowledged. And that has been really helpful to some people. <laughs> Turns out we all could use some protective factors along the way. Kaylin O'Connor, Tabitha Kelly, I thank you guys so much for not only the work you're doing, but the time you're spending here with us. Uh, thanks again for being a part of this. And, and thanks for, for doing what you're doing. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Now, Tabitha Kelly was recently the guest on one of the Center for the Study of Social Policy's Strengthening Families Network webinars. She discussed how Arlington is continuing to shift the family and youth experience within their department. We'll make sure to put a a link to the webinar within the show notes there. So, hey, if you haven't listened to part one, I really encourage you to do so. We really touched on guidance for child welfare and social workers on what they can do to help identify and recognize both the presence and or absence of protective factors and tools to support those conversations with parents and families. We'll also point to the National Child Abuse Prevention Month website, which contains the really popular Prevention Resource Guide. You can download the entire guide for free or use the site to dive into each section. And when you check it out, be sure to look at Chapter 2, Working with Families Using the Protective Factors, which helps break down the protective factors and provides guidance for both workers and programs. The website also has a series of vignettes on putting protective factors in practice. And these are five scenarios that demonstrate how protective factors directly support strengthening families. They're really good for training new staff and working directly with parents, too. You know, we love the feedback we're getting on these and the other Information Gateway podcasts. So, hey, keep it coming. You can reach us at info at childwelfare.gov. We'd love to hear your ideas and your thoughts. And as always, check out the other podcasts and head toward Information Gateway for your information needs, including the nation's largest child welfare-related library, nearly 90,000 titles, including journal articles, books, digital material. And you can conduct an advanced search right there at the website at childwelfare.gov. So that's it for our two-part series on protective factors. My thanks to Kaylin O'Connor and Tabitha Kelly, and thanks to you for listening to the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. I'm Tom Oates. Have a great day. Thanks for joining us for this edition of the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. Child Welfare Information Gateway is available at childwelfare.gov and is a service of the Children's Bureau, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Administration for Children and Families. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Information Gateway or the Children's Bureau.